Success Insight shares the stories of the people with passion and drive who make things happen in the world. Here's your host, Howard Fox. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Success Insight podcast for my co-host, Randy Ford. This is Howard Fox, and I hope you are having a fantastic start to your week. Our guest today is the author of Proposition 13, America's Second Great Tax Revolt. Now, Charles Guaria has a 15-year career as a librarian that has taken him from Wall Street to academia. In addition to this book, an accomplished writer, researcher, and he's presently authoring two new books, one on baseball and one on music. And we'll let Charles talk a little bit more about that in just a few minutes. Chuck, welcome to the Success Insight Podcast. Hope you're doing very well. I'm doing great, Howard. Thanks for having me. So tell us a little about your background and going into library science and spent quite a a decent career, both on the Wall Street side, which I'm curious about how interesting that was, but then going into academia and really pursuing that vocation and then how you got into becoming an accomplished author. So share a little bit about your story. Sure. I originally was going to be in education. I was going to be a teacher. Got in front of the classroom a couple of times in high school, (laughs) at the high school level, and realized that it was not for me. My wife at the time had uh, suggested being a librarian. And when I looked into it and saw that corporate libraries were around, I was like, okay, this sounds like a great opportunity. The way I got to Wall Street, I was going to Queens College, to CUNY School in New York City. And Believe it or not, 1996, they were still putting job advertisements on billboards, like with the little push pin, <laughs> and they had all the jobs. And there was a job for Lehman Brothers. And I applied there as a library assistant because I was still in library school. Got hired and worked there through 2003. So I was not there when they crashed. Good. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So, Charles, you spent your career as a librarian getting the education in library science. And, you know, really in the spirit of disclosure, I actually have quite a few friends here in Chicago that were in library science. And I know with the economic downturn after the events on Wall Street that, mm-hmm. you know, the, just the whole role of libraries, library science, it became a highly coveted job. There just weren't opportunities out there. And how did you go from Wall Street into academia? When I was let go at Lehman, I spent a good 13, 14 months applying for jobs. I did get a part-time job at a school out east on Long Island called Dowling College. Applied at Long Island University, interestingly enough, not knowing that I was going to have to write as a part of the job. (laughs) And when I was being interviewed by the dean, she said to me, do you have writing samples? And I had written an article for Stony Brook University, which is where I got my bachelor's. I, was, I had written an article for their newspaper and I had a website about baseball. And I said, that's all that I have. So she looked at it and she hired me. And it's quite amazing to think that I went from not even... I probably wouldn't have even apply for the job had I known I had to submit writing samples to now I'm an author. I really owe it all. I'll give her full credit. Constance Wu, who is still working at Long Island University, she is the one who hired me. And I give her full credit because I probably wouldn't be here if it wasn't for that. 
Well, we'll give a shout out to Constance Wu. And if we can find her on LinkedIn, we'll even link her as well. Absolutely. You know, that's pretty amazing. I mean, you not knowing that you were going to have to be proficient at writing and having a requirement to, to publish and how that has now, as you rightly say, evolved into becoming uh, an accomplished author. And speaking of becoming an accomplished author, tell us about Proposition 13. I remember this growing up back in the early 70s. I just was graduating from high school. I've just shared my age. That's okay. (laughs) But I remember this and it was a big deal in California. And as the book title alludes to, it's had some long-lasting impact. So share more about how you came to write this book and what are your thoughts on the subject and where we are today as a result of it. Sure. How I came to write the book, actually, I was co-authoring an article on libraries and the economy. And I noticed quite often two areas, Ohio and California, were constantly coming up as library systems that had financial issues. So we had decided I was going to take California and she was going to take Ohio, uh, my co-author on that article. And I found out that the reason most of the time, the blame for library financial difficulties in California tied back to Proposition 13. So that's how I got interested in this proposition. Can you share a little bit for our listeners? What was Proposition 13, just so we bring them up to speed? Yes. Proposition 13 is a property tax cut that cut, on average, property tax per household by 57%. So if the government doesn't have that money coming in, it looks to cut services. It could not, by law, cut the fire department, the police department. Where do they cut? They cut parks. They cut, you know, fixing that lamp at the end of your street corner that's been out for two weeks. Maybe now it's going to be out for four weeks because they can't they can't get to it because they would blame they the politicians would blame uh, Proposition 13 and they would cut libraries. So that's how it all tied together. How did it come to be? California is one of the states that has referendum. Sometimes it's called initiative. They can put anything they want on the ballot. They the people can put anything they want on the ballot as long as they get enough signatures to do that. So these these two gentlemen, Howard Jarvis and Paul Gann, got the signatures, had Proposition 13 put on the ballot, very straightforward approach of if you vote yes to Proposition 13, you'll save X amount in year one, X amount in year two. Oh, yeah. It was a very straightforward campaign because other people had tried this, including Ronald Reagan, to cut property taxes when he was governor of California. And also Governor Jerry Brown tried to have an alternative to Proposition 13. And most of the time, it was viewed as their ideas are too complex and either too late in the case of Brown and his battle against Proposition 13. They were very straightforward. The people behind Proposition 13 were very straightforward. Citizens understood it. I'll save money if I vote yes. They voted yes. It was an example of the people taking back power from the government because the government, they felt, was incredibly inefficient. And it's true in the sense that the government of California at that time had so much money in their surplus they didn't know how much they had. I detail this in the book. They would state anywhere, we have a $3 billion surplus to as high as $9 billion. They couldn't figure out. So the people said, this is inefficient. We got to do something about this. They're taxing us more and more. Our property taxes are going up and up and up. And they don't even know how much they have. So they took back the power. It wasn't a panacea. There are pros and cons right up till today. It's still the law. In fact, it's going to be voted on again, not this November, but November 2020. There are two parts to Proposition 13, just to get into the weeds a little bit. There's the commercial part, 
and there's the residential. Nobody wants to touch the residential because, you know, the politicians don't want to annoy their constituents. But the commercial part might be changed and that's up for vote next year. So this is still very relevant. And that's where I could give an extra plug to the book. That's where I think this book is, is super important because if you want to know what you're voting on next November, this book does give you the history right up until today of how Proposition 13 started, the pluses and the minuses of all. So an ideal reader for this book is any resident in the state of California. Right. Any resident in the state of California. We also go into different states up into Washington and Maine. They also had similar laws. So we examine those. In fact, quite a few, I believe it was in the high teens, roughly 17, 18, shortly after Proposition 13 passed, tried to enact some form of a property tax cut as well. That's why it's called America's Second Great Tax Revolution. It, according to some folks, started the conservative movement of cutting taxes that I think roughly runs from 1978 to 1988 and helped Ronald Reagan get elected. So there's a lot behind this. Um, I get into all that. A lot of highlights. You know, when you're talking about California, you're talking about kind of rock star governors like Jerry Brown and Schwarzenegger. All those people are included in the book as well. So I'm curious with this book and Proposition 13, I mean, as you just stated, the impact of this proposition, this initiative has resulted in similar movements taking place around the country and has been the perhaps the birth of the conservative tax cutting movement. And to this day, the Republican agenda is tax cuts, tax cuts, tax cuts. And while they're there, there are unanticipated consequences. I mean, you have services continuing to get cut, et cetera. And I know we don't want to talk about politics, or at least I don't want to talk about no, politics. Right. But what other unanticipated consequences were there as a result of the Proposition 13 and initiatives like this. And before you respond to that, the citizens voted, you're going to cut my property taxes. Great. I have more money now in my pocket. There were the unanticipated consequences. So the impact to the libraries, what other impacts did you come across as you were doing the research and in the writing of the book? Well, one of the unanticipated consequences was more power wound up going to the state government from the local government. All of a sudden, the state government had the power of the purse strings, right? If the local government was receiving those property taxes and they don't get those property taxes anymore, they were getting a bailout. Interestingly enough, Governor Brown, who was against Proposition 13 until it passed, all of a sudden became a born-again tax cutter after it passed. And this, to his credit, he wanted to help bail out the local districts. The state, because of that surplus, was giving money to the local government. However, they said, you want this money, you're going to have... It wasn't an unfunded mandate. You want this money, here's what we want from you. There were strings attached to it. At the time that the people were grabbing back power the local government actually lost power. So that was an unintended consequence. And they used to have to, in a sense, go to Sacramento, the capital of California, with their hand open and asking for money. Unfortunate consequences beyond that, you know, parks. It it hurt the parks and recreation. Probably a lot of people didn't see that coming. Some parks were closed. Some parks simply weren't cleaned. It also, when we focus on libraries, because the book is focused on libraries and beyond that, but the main focus, of course, is, is how it affected libraries and how libraries manage their budgets, etc. A lot of the communities that 
use like uh, it hurt minorities is what I'm trying to say. Uh, minorities were using civil service work at that time to rise up to, to have a career. Minorities were using the libraries more than the upscales community because if you lived in an upscale community, you typically could buy the book. If you know the poorer communities, which at that time at least were largely minority, were not able to buy the book, they needed to get the book free. You know, basically in seventy eight books, they needed to get the book free, and the libraries were closed or the hours were cut, and therefore they were less able to access information. Thank you for sharing that. And now you actually raised a point, and I do want to provide an opportunity for you to share about this. How have libraries survived and innovated because they're still very relevant today? I mean, just up the street from me, we have the Harold Washington Library in Chicago, and it's it's still a very vibrant building, though not maybe the, the best looking building, but libraries are still around. They're still with us. They're still being built. So what are the innovations that took place that have allowed them to survive just given this drastic cut to their annual budgets? Libraries are places of community now more than ever. When you go to a library, so I mentioned 1978, it was largely books that were in question. You know, California was really just starting getting network computers. Today, you can sign out from a library. It's called the Internet of Things. And you can sign out from a library art. You can sign out from a library kitchen appliances. So if you're entertaining, for instance, and you just need wanted to bring in some art, you could do that. Uh, the Jacksonville Library actually has weddings. It's quite beautiful. Their website, Jacksonville, Florida, you want to check out. They have a beautiful two or three floors up, open deck, pool with water streaming from both sides. It's really good. And a catering hall right at the library. Maker spaces, which is based on art and getting people within the community together to do paper crafting. Of course, it's still story time for parents and their children. So it's a, it's a, it's a place of community. There are talks there now. Music. I've gone to see musical performances. In the summertime in New York, they'll have outdoor concerts. So the library is more of a community than ever before, which keeps it alive. And also, it's important, like your listeners, to know that libraries aren't warehousing information as much as they are getting it out, disseminating it. I, there is sometimes this feeling that libraries are just housing the information, but we all as librarians want to disseminate information. Are libraries doing a decent job of marketing themselves? And, and, and I know you just shared about the Jacksonville Library. It sounds fascinating. And I know like in Chicago, when you go to the upper floor, it's just shelves after shelves of books. There's, It's actually the old Chicago Library has this wonderful venue for parties and reception. So right. what are they doing today to market themselves? How are they using the social media and event opportunities? Any unique ways that maybe they are on the leading edge of marketing and community? I mean, over and above what you've just shared. Right. I don't think on the whole, that libraries do a really great job of marketing. I would imagine there are a lot of people who are going to listen to this and say, oh my, oh my God, I didn't realize that libraries were doing all those things. You know, Maybe we should go and check out what they have. Well, we should plug, I, Chuck, that, hey, go out and visit your, your local library, see what they have to offer, events that they're holding. That'll be a good plug for us. Absolutely. I, I totally agree. I think they are on social media, as you mentioned. I no longer live in New York, but I still follow the New York Public Library uh, on Facebook. I follow libraries on Twitter. They are there. So at the very least, I would encourage 
your listeners to hop on their favorite social media and find their local library so they can stay in touch with what's going on. Get a library card. That's always a great thing to do. I would have to say that was well-seated information from you and maybe a little bit from me, but I think the use of social media, having the right hashtags, but we'll get this podcast out and we'll make that plug, you know, for whoever's listening to our podcast and they're all over the country, North America for that matter, go visit your local public library. It's a wonderful place. And speaking of Facebooks and Twitters, Where's the best place for our listeners to learn more about you and your work? I am currently building my social media network. I do have a whole bunch of pages, but perhaps the best place that you can find me right now is Twitter. And I go by Chuck Long Island. If you go to twitter.com slash Chuck Long Island, you'll find me. I'm also on LinkedIn. I have the Amazon author page. I have Facebook page that's personal and author. So you can find me in all those, but the main place to go would be Twitter, Chuck Long Island. Excellent. And we are going to put a backlink to your book page on Amazon so folks can learn more about you. I know you had a really nice author's bio out there and they can have an opportunity to to purchase the book. And speaking of purchasing the book, I am curious, when you were writing this book, who was your intended audience for it? My intended audience for the book comes down to two main categories. One is is anybody who works in libraries or is getting a library degree, any library student, and also MPA students, uh, masters in public administration. Because you're going to get a lot of, you know, what did the government do, which is where the MPAs would be interested, and a lot of what the libraries do. Because we do go into budgets and personnel decisions, budgetary decisions, services, and what services a library should cut, and how government will start prioritizing when they get less money. Very, very much so. And, you know, it, it dawns on me too. The book is so incredibly important to within the public dialogue of we want for example, those budget cuts, we want, or tax cuts. We don't want budget cuts, we want tax cuts. Yes. (laughs) There are unanticipated consequences. And I think it's in our interest, again, whatever side of the political spectrum you're on to to demand, expect that your local, your state, your federal politicians are giving you answers, not just talking around the the question and the answer, what they think we want to hear. Because just looking back, I know this proposition affected, you know, in the state of California, and I remember even in here in Chicago, the, you know, friends were affected by the budget cuts at the library system. So it's just so important politically to be tuned into what's happening. We can't just have our heads down, you know, playing games on our smartphones or on our right. PC. Charles, in addition to the book we alluded to, you're writing a couple other books. Can you share briefly what those are about? Sure. I'm writing two right now. One is a book about a baseball coach. He actually does not have a name at the moment. So when I say baseball coach, that's what he's referred to. And that's, that's part of the mystery of the man. It is about his personality more so than X's and O's. So if you're not a sportsman or a baseball fan in particular, yes, there will be some strategy involved. You you can't not do that. But he's a very complex human being who has hopefully a few things that people can empathize with, but hopefully a lot of things that people are going to be like, I hate this guy. What did he do next? (laughs) (laughs) It's It's that kind of thing. Until... 
until the twist comes later on down the road where maybe uh, everybody's going to be like, oh, if I write it correctly, everybody will be like, holy smokes, I didn't see that coming. It, it's more about his personality with baseball as a background of his life. The musician book is the one that I focus most of my attention on. And that essentially is the musician comes to the four in 1971. He's heavily influenced by Jimi Hendrix. That style of music affected a lot by Hendrix's life. And it's a book that travels from Puerto Rico to New York, uh, to Toledo, out to California. I've encompassed the entire United States in that book, hitting all aspects and striving very much to represent each part of that country and the characters in, in that country precisely as, as they would. So in other words, if I have somebody in, in uh, Toledo, Ohio, in my book, which I do, he's not going to say, forget about it, like somebody in New York would. So that's an interesting part of the, of the book. I make sure that it's realistic. It's called realistic fiction. And that's what the uh, musician book is about. Fantastic. And we certainly look forward to hearing when the book has been published. And perhaps you'll gift us with coming back on the podcast and talking about it. And I would love to. And by the way, you mentioned Toledo, which was just down the road from my hometown, Detroit. And when I hear Toledo, I think of Tony Pacos. But uh, <laughs> so anybody from Toledo, you'll know what I'm talking about. Well, uh, well I will. I will divulge that Toledo does play a part, uh, a, a rather large part in this book. That's why I paused to talk about having somebody in Toledo actually speak like a Midwesterner. Um, uh, so if you give me some tips on, on that, I would love to hear. Um, I, I don't know that we would necessarily say what you're talking about, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, there's the, there's the, uh, the Chicago dialect, you know, from the, the Bears guys. You yeah. know, at, at, <laughs> I, I was at a, what do you call those things before the game? When you uh, 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 tailgate. Tailgate. You can tell I've not been in enough tailgates, but I was at a tailgate <laughs> and literally there were guys sitting out with their bears jackets on, on the, you know, the old chairs, you know, drinking yeah. beers and having hot dogs. And uh, I wanted to take a picture, but I, I didn't, but it's just like, oh my God, this is it. <laughs> Chuck, I really want to thank you for taking time out of your busy day to come to the Success Insight podcast and share about your work and the book, Proposition 13, America's Second Great Tax Revolt. Again, we're going to share backlinks to the book page on Amazon. And folks, again, go and follow Chuck on Twitter, twitter.com, Chuck Long Island. But again, we want to thank you for joining us today. Great. Thank you for having me. All right, folks, there you have it. We had Chuck Guaria, author of Proposition 13, America's Second Great Tax Revolt. We learned a lot about how voting on a, an initiative, a proposition, can have some unanticipated consequences. And in some cases, it has put these entities, these public entities that we depend on, such as libraries, in a position to have to redefine themselves and what their mission is. And libraries, at least here in Chicago, it sounds like down in Jacksonville are thriving. And so I would certainly encourage you, I know Chuck encourages you to go out and learn more about your local public library as well. So for my co-host, Randy Ford, this is Howard Fox. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, go out there and have a phenomenal day. Thank you. Success Insight is a production of Fox Coaching and First Story Strategies. Find us online, successinsightpodcast.com.